0: Well, good morning, everybody. I want to say thank you to the worship team for leading us this morning, and I also want to say thank you to you as the congregation for, for singing. I, I, this morning, I found myself listening, and uh, to be surrounded by people singing uh, spoke wonderfully to my heart this morning, so thank you for that. This uh, Saturday is Remembrance Day, and as followers of Jesus, it is appropriate that we should pause, we should reflect and we should mourn the loss of human life and mourn the injustice that exists that makes armed conflict seemingly a normal, normal part of the human experience. And as we come to Remembrance Day, many of us are thinking a lot about the current conflict that's happening in Gaza. And as we know, that's just one of many places where conflict has seemed to be normal in our world today. As followers of Jesus, the way that we remember should be shaped by our connection to Jesus. And we ought to recognize that war is a symptom of the brokenness that sin has brought about in our world and is, in fact, contrary to the very life of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we recognize that on both sides of any conflict are people that God has created, that God loves dearly, and God has hopes and dreams for. As a follower of Jesus, I believe that that Jesus has come to bring healing and wholeness to a world that's plagued with violence, and not only that, but he has given us as his followers the duty of being peacemakers. And so this week, as we pause to remember, we are reminded that there is, more, there is much work to be done and that we have a role to play in what God wants to bring about in this world. Please join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, this morning we are grateful for the freedoms that we enjoy. Recognizing that for many in our world, these freedoms don't exist. Lord, as we approach Remembrance Day, we are reminded of the violence and war that continues to exist in our world. And we choose to remember the human faces of violence. We remember those who have died in battle. We remember those who, were wo- who have been wounded, both physically and emotionally. And Lord, we also remember the civilian victims of war, the murdered and the displaced. Lord Jesus, as we remember this week, move us to pray for peace and help us to be a willing part of your peace coming to earth. Lord, as we reflect this week, we look to you to, give, to help us. And Lord, we ask that you would give us visions and dreams. Give us a new heart that feels the things that you feel. And in all of this, Lord, we declare that our true allegiance belongs to you. And so we pray these words that Jesus taught us to pray And West Heights, I invite you to join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. One of the requirements of the Bible College program I took, a long time ago now, uh, was that we had to do a placement in a local church to get some experience. And so to facilitate this, they organized a fair of sorts where church leaders and students would uh, have a chance to meet. And At one of these fairs back in 2002, and that's 21 years ago, I was connected with a pastor named Bill Johnson. Some of us know Bill Johnson. And uh, Bill at that time was the pastor at Crossroads Community Church, Crossroads BIC Church that's just outside of Cambridge. And there they were looking for uh, somebody to help with their youth group, and they got me and I got them and it was a lot of fun. And for 2 years I got a chance to to be a part of that church community. Now, in my opinion, although it was a great placement, the best part of this uh, this placement was that Bill and I would meet weekly for coffee at Tim Hortons and he paid. I was a student, right? Uh, And at one of these meetings, you know, Bill would use this as mentoring, and he did a fantastic job. And one of these meetings, Bill talked to me about the BIC, or the Be in Christ Church. That's our denomination now, and he talked to me about Anabaptists, and that's a part of our our theological heritage as a church. And about our convictions on peace and nonviolence being the Jesus way. Now, this was new to me because like many of us perhaps in this room, I didn't grow up in the BIC. I didn't grow up in Anabaptist church circles. And, and so while I, I wouldn't say that growing up we were pro-violence, we didn't talk about nonviolence and peacemaking like we do in the theological tradition that we're a part of. And so 21-year-old Josh looked Bill in the eye, and I called him up and I said, Bill, do you remember this conversation? He, and I could tell he was shaking his head over the phone. I said, Bill, do you remember this conversation? He said, yes. And I laughed at him and I said, so you are telling me that if somebody broke into your house that you wouldn't club them with a baseball bat? I thought I knew it all. Because I thought he was nuts. I mean, because it sounded to me that this peace approach that he was unpacking for me was a nice idea, but it didn't make a lot of sense in real life. It sounded like a lot of talk while you stood by and maybe watched something really bad happen. And you know what, maybe that thought has gone through your mind as we've worked through this peaceful practices material this fall. Maybe you found yourself thinking, you know what, pastor, that sounds like some nice ideas, but what happens if we encounter someone who's belittling somebody else? Or what happens when, what does the role of dialogue look like when we find ourselves in the presence of oppression, or persecution, or hatred, or injustice, How does this peacemaking stuff work in real life? And you know what? These are fantastic questions. They really are. To be honest, they don't have nice, neat, tidy answers. They're messy. Now, as a quick aside, I uh, point out that we have a bookshelf out there. It's our resource bookshelf. And over there, there are a couple books uh, in that... um, that kind of talk about responding to conflict in some rather creative and some provocative ways, and you might find that interesting if you're interested in exploring this a little bit more. We have that resource shelf available to us. Well, in this series, we are looking to develop skills that can help us navigate uh, those relationships and those circumstances where there is the potential for conflict and the potential for divisive differences or division. And so far, a lot of what we've talked about has been conversational practices. And you know what? We've started here on purpose because, well, let's be honest. For most of us, our default is not to be good listeners. Our default is to be argumentative. You know, our, 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 our default is not to be curious and say, hey, can you tell me more? Help me understand this. Our default is to become defensive and maybe even aggressive with where we're coming from at something. Our default is to be judgmental. And so we've started at this place of, let's talk about what does it mean to think differently and to be in conversationally, conversation differently because, you know what, it's hard. These aren't our default settings. And if we're not careful, our defaults, as we've talked about, will only serve to escalate conflict instead of de-escalate. They only serve to deepen divisions instead of finding ways to bridge divides. Well, this morning we're going to build on what we've been talking about as we explore this role of action. You know, what is something that we can do or how are we supposed to act when we find ourselves engaging in conflict and division within this idea of peacemaking? And again, let me just say at this point, there's no one-size-fits-all, nice, neat, tidy answer, here you go, this will fix everything solution here. Uh, But we are going to be exploring this idea that to be a peacemaker means that we include action in our dialogue. Action in how we interact with people that we might be in conflict or division with. And so to ground our time together this morning, we're going to look to a time when Jesus engages conflict by taking action in a way that, to be honest, seems very um, confrontational and really gets people's attention. But it's all about pointing people towards a better way. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter uh, from Mark chapter eleven, reading from verse fifteen to verse nineteen. And I'm sure this will be familiar to many of us. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, "Is it not written?" My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. There's a, a picture in my office that I've gathered at some point in time. I don't even know where it came from, but it's a picture of, of Jesus with a child sitting on his lap. And Jesus has this beaming smile on his face as he and this, this child are engaged in conversation. And for many of us, this might be how we picture Jesus. When we think about Jesus, we might have an image like this that comes to our minds. Or perhaps the, the image that comes to our mind is, is Jesus on, on a hillside teaching people, people who are eager to learn, and Jesus is the teacher. Or maybe Jesus is the compassionate healer as he's healing people who are coming to him with various illnesses. Or maybe even the picture that comes to mind is is Jesus on the cross. But in most of those cases, you know, how we're picturing Jesus tends to be Jesus in a posture of humility with compassion and, 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 and almost meekness. But in what we read right here, we get kind of a different view of Jesus than that picture of Jesus with the child on his lap, don't we? Now what's interesting is that this is at least the second time that Jesus acts like this. It really is, it's, very, it's interesting to kind of look into. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, those are the synoptic gospels, they all tell the story basically the same way. And the story that we just read, and it's at the end of Jesus's ministry, it's, it sets everything up for Jesus's death. But if you look to John's gospel, we get a story right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And that's the one, where Jesus pulls, makes a whip and chases people out of the temple. Not sounding very meek, does it? We don't know if Jesus hit anybody, but Matthew, did, you know, John doesn't say any. He hit four people. He doesn't say that, okay? It, but he it definitely was a motivational thing to get people out of there, that's for sure. But it happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as a way of helping us understand who this Jesus is and, and what this Jesus is going to be all about. And all of this is to point out that if we have this idea of Jesus being this nice, calm, gentle person, we're missing out on a piece of who Jesus is. Because there were moments and situations where Jesus took very, a very dramatic action that was, it a, is a confrontation. Now, the passage that we read this morning, this scene is happening, happening in the temple in an area called the Court of Gentiles. And before we unpack it further, we need to remember, you know, the whole calling and purpose of God's people. The biblical people of of Israel were called, designed to be a kingdom of priests. Meaning it was their job to bring people to God and bring God to people. That was their role. That was a part of their calling for uh, why God had called them and made them unique. They were to perform, be priests to the whole world. And so the result is that even in the construction of the temple, there is this space that had been set aside for those who are not Jewish to worship God because it was a priority for God that people who are not Jewish could find and encounter God and would become to know God and become a part of God's people for themselves. And so that is the court of Gentiles. But by the time of Jesus, this space no longer existed as a spiritual space. Rather, it had become commercialized, making worship and prayer almost impossible. And what made it worse was that the business that was happening in this area was the exploitation of those who came to worship. Let's talk about that for a moment. You know, every Jewish person had to pay a temple tax. It was about two days' wages for the average working person. Now, for most of us, we might think, you know what, I might be able to handle two days wages, you know, if, that's, if it's going towards a good cause. But we need to recognize that this isn't actually the case for everybody. For some of us, we would really notice that. In fact, just for a point of perspective, two days, I did a little bit of math, not really in-depth, but a little bit of math, two days average wage would be about uh, a week and a half worth of groceries for the average family of four. Some of us would really feel that if we suddenly didn't have access to that money. And as if that hadn't been enough, wasn't enough, the temple tax had to be paid in a particular currency that most people didn't have. But the good news is they could change your money for you, if you want, for a fee. And that fee was another half day's wage. Again, if you're living on the margins, as many people in Jesus' day were, you were going to feel that. That was a lot of money. And as if though that wasn't enough, the tax and that fee wasn't enough, there were other ways that they, they got you. You know, to worship required animal sacrifices. And the doves that, that Mark mentions here in particular are the, are the uh, sacrifice of choice for the poor. They were affordable. And so you know what you could do? You could find a dove on the outside. You could buy a dove on the outside for a relatively low price. But, but, if you brought it in, And those temple inspectors didn't find it blemish-free because it was supposed to be free of blemishes. And let me tell you, they found blemishes. If you brought your own from the outside, you couldn't use that. Good news again, though. They had that temple-approved dove sitting over there, but they cost about 20 times more than they would have cost you on the outside. That's about 12 days' wages is what they would have cost you. So if you're doing the math, we're up to about two weeks' wages for some people. And to make matters worse, the family that was in in charge of all this buying and selling is the family of the high priest. You know, the system very much is corrupt, was corrupt, with the powerful profiting at the expense of the poor, and everybody knew it, but there were few people in any position who could do anything about it. And this is where we see Jesus come in. Now, before we get any further, I, I, I was reminded, as I was thinking about this, this this week, about a time when I was in youth group, and our youth group wanted to do a bake sale as a fundraiser for a church missions trip. But we weren't allowed to do it in the building, in the foyer, and this passage was given as the reason why we couldn't do it. Good news is, though, you could do it just outside the front doors in the parking lot. <laughs> Anybody else have an experience like this? okay, where this was used, okay, Uh, let me just say that what's happening in this passage is so much more than whether or not we can buy and sell stuff inside the church building. Rather, this passage is about exploitation, it's about systemic injustice, it's about preventing people who want to worship from being able to worship. It is about so much more. And so in this passage, we see Jesus doing two two things, and the first thing is, Jesus names the wrong for what it is. Jesus names the wrong for what it is. And in this passage, uh, Jesus quotes from the book of Jeremiah, uh, and I'm going to read that from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11 here. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. You know, Jesus here is saying that he is the God who has been watching, He's been watching what is going on and he is naming the wrong that he's witnessing and he's making a scathing indictment of what is happening that kind of has two parts to it. The first, and this one kind of feels obvious, is that Jesus is calling what he sees criminal in nature. You know, the poor are being robbed. Now, folks in Jesus' day would have been familiar with a stretch of road that went between uh, Jericho and Jerusalem. And this road was narrow. It was winding between, uh, between hills. Uh, there were caves that robbers had robbers hid where they could wait and jump out at travelers. It was a notorious place where if you traveled on that road, you were running the risk of getting robbed. And in a real sense, Jesus is saying what is happening at the temple is worse than what happens in that place that everybody knows that you're going to get robbed. That's a big statement. But there's even more to this quote. See, the word that our English translations translate as, as robbers or thieves in other first century uh, Jewish writings were also used, was also used to describe those who were engaged in anti-government warfare. And in Jesus' day, there were these religious zealots who were using the tempile, tempile, temple, <laughs> tempile? I just created a word. They were using the temple uh, as a base to propagate their nationalistic agendas, which would have included an anti-Gentile system of beliefs. And so this Jewish-first ideology made it really easy to be able to push people aside who weren't Jewish. It made it easy to justify eliminating this sacred space that these Gentiles were supposed to be able to worship because, you know what, they weren't like us. And in doing so, they were ignoring God's heart for the non-Jewish, for the world. And so Jesus is naming all this. For three years, uh, when I was in seminary, I drove from Cambridge to Hamilton with some regularity. And one fall, the teacher's assistants or the TAs uh, went on strike. I I can't remember what the strike particulars were about, but we can figure that that's neither here nor there for this story. Uh, For the most part, that strike did not affect me. It didn't affect me in my little seminary, but uh, what it did do is it kind of interrupted the flow of traffic. See, they set up a picket line at the entrance to the commuter parking lot at McMaster University. And so every day we'd pull up and you'd have to wait. You'd have to wait to be allowed in. They didn't stop us from entering, but they slowed things down and they caused a disruption in order to draw attention to the point that they were making. Now, in a sense, I think that, the second, that this is the second thing that we see Jesus doing in this passage. That Jesus is disrupting an oppressive system. You know, when Jesus is flipping those tables and flipping those benches, turning those benches over, he's not just having a, a fit. He's not just operating in a blind rage. Rather, there's something very strategic happening here. See, by doing this, he is disrupting the commercial process that is exploiting people and interfering with other people's abilities to worship. And not only does he flip these tables, but he's disrupting the flow of traffic through this, the flow of traffic that was existing through this area of the temple, so that nobody could carry things through. See, the temple court in Jesus' day was being used by some as a shortcut from one part of the point of the city to the other, but this wasn't supposed to happen. In fact, there's a collection of rabbinic teaching called the Mishnah, and it made it clear. It makes it clear in this that a man may not enter into the Temple Mount with his staff, his sandal, or his wallet, or the dust upon his feet, nor may he make of it a short bypath. But by the time of Jesus, the Jews thought so little of this part of the temple; they didn't value it like they ought to have, and they used it as a shortcut to run their business errands. And in doing so, they were not just not seeing the temple as a a place of worship, but they were again making it so those spiritually seeking Gentiles had no place to go. And so what we see Jesus doing is strategically disrupting this system that was exploiting people and keeping others from encountering God. Now, we have to acknowledge that this act of disruption was temporary. And at the end of the day, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples, they ended their protest... And they went home. They left the city. And I'm sure that the next day, everything went back to normal. But this act of disruption got people's attention. And Mark tells us about this. See, Mark tells us that those who were in power, those religious leaders, were scared. They were scared because their schemes had been exposed and the change that Jesus pointed towards would mean that they would lose their source of power and wealth. And Mark tells us that this began in the point where they started to plot Jesus' death in earnest. And not only did those in power notice, but the crowds noticed too. And Mark tells us that they were totally amazed. And Actually, their amazement is what makes those, uh, those powerful people nervous. Because you can imagine that for many of them, they have just gone along with this. This is just the way it is. But then here we have somebody in power, Jesus, somebody a, with authority saying, wait, no, it doesn't have to be this way. It shouldn't be this way. And now in their imaginations, they're seeing the possibility that things could be different. They didn't think there could be another way, but now they're inspired. And this is what disruption does. Disruption scares some people, and it inspires others. Now, there's a lot of places that we could go in this, and let me just say, every time I I, I preach a sermon or look at what Jesus does in the Gospels, more often than not, I find myself being like, ooh, this could get me fired because Jesus says some stuff that, that really upsets things, upsets the status quo, challenges things the way that they are and should make us uncomfortable. But we don't like being uncomfortable and this is one of those times where if you're shifting back and forth a little bit, I'm doing that this week too, it's because Jesus is doing his Jesus thing. But for today, we're going to be looking at it in terms of our focus on navigating conflict and division. And I'm not going to go and tell you to go protest something in particular. Somebody probably could make the case based on this, but we're not going that direction today. But we're looking at how does this help us find this balance between reconciliation-oriented talk and justice-oriented work? And I think what we see Jesus doing in here helps us kind of find, maybe find some things that can help us think through. What does it mean to be engaged in dialogue that isn't just talk, but includes some of our actions? And so for, here's a few things that I think we, we ought to keep in mind as we seek to include, uh, include action into our peacemaking work. The first is that dialogue does not include, exclude action. Dialogue does not exclude action. You know, so far in this series, we've looked at about four passages where Jesus has been engaged in some good conversation, some good discussion with people. But we have to realize that just like this passage where Jesus is talking, Jesus pauses and he teaches as well as acts, that there's lots of other points in the Gospels where Jesus does the same thing, where Jesus pairs conversation with action. In Luke chapter 13, we read a story about Jesus healing a disabled woman on the Sabbath while at the same time having a conversation with a religious leader. And in, we see this again in John's gospel, where Jesus heals somebody who's visually impaired while at the same time having a conversation with, one of the, with some of the Pharisees. And so that, all that is to say that Jesus' way of navigating hard topics is to not just throw all of his eggs in the basket of having a conversation, but that is just one of the ways that Jesus engages what it means to bring God's peace to earth. And sometimes it requires that we take action, that we discern that we need to take steps of action. And so for some of us, this is something that we need to keep in mind because maybe we're scared to take, a, to take action. Maybe our default is just the hope that things will just go away or problems will just fix themselves or if we're just really nice that somehow things will be fine. But as we reflect on our experiences of conflict and division, we need to keep in mind that there just might be a time or an opportunity when the right thing to do is to act with boldness if something wrong is ever going to actually be addressed. Second, dialogue recognizes imbalances of power. Dialogue recognizes imbalances of power. Uh, As somebody who is a supervisor, who has people who work for, report to me, I acknowledge I have an amazing staff team. And one of the things that's really great about this staff team is that we have healthy and sometimes very spirited conversations on things. And for the most part, I think they feel very comfortable pushing back on my ideas. They don't just necessarily go with them. That said, I also at the same time realize that because of my position, I have the ability to steer or influence conversations and the ability to make decisions in ways that they don't. That's just a fact. That's just the way it is. Another example could be, you know, the reality that that in our society, in the grand scheme of our society, I am a relatively uh, well-educated, middle-class white man. And as such, I feel a a, a sense of security, a sense of uh, autonomy, a sense of confidence that folks who don't look like me, or maybe don't have a, a, a place of being secure in our society, they don't have. That's just real life. And I say this just to point out, illustrate the fact that every day we experience this imbalances this of power and influence. This is just a part of our day to day interactions. Now, in this passage, by focusing on the exchange of doves, Jesus is recognizing who might be suffering most by what is happening at the temple. Sure, there are others who, who also likely are being cheated. In fact, actually, if you look at John's gospel account of Jesus in the temple, it goes in a different direction because it focuses on larger animals, which would have been the sacrifice of the wealthy. That's a whole other thing that we could explore. But here, Mark makes the point to tell us about how Jesus focuses in on the experience of the poor. See, the poor did not have the resources. They did not have the power. They did not have the influence to act on their behalf. And what Jesus is doing is he's acknowledging this and naming it. You know, if we want to truly engage in what can be considered a transformative dialogue, we need to recognize and not ignore the inequalities that might be present in our relationships or might be present in various conflicts that we might be encountering. And for some of us, what we need to recognize is that we might be the person benefiting from having more influence or power in a particular situation or circumstance. And when we learn to acknowledge this, what we are doing is we are creating space for an honest conversation about what is actually happening to take place. We are creating space and opportunity for that conflict to go in a healthier direction. Third, dialogue addresses deep conflicts. You know, for some of us, our, our temptation is to try to make peace in situations by fi- finding common ground. And you know what? Well, finding common ground is really important. We sometimes do this at the expense of actually going deep in it and identifying what the real problem is. We can sometimes stay at the superficial level. And when we stay at a superficial level, uh, we actually are running the risk of causing more harm than good. Well, in this passage, Jesus cuts right to the chase by using Scripture to call out this corrupt and this exploitive system. He names it for what it is. And you know what? In order for us to engage in a healthy dialogue, we also need to learn how to identify and name and address the real conflict. And we talked about this in one of our early sessions when we had a picture of the iceberg. Do we remember some of this? And we talked about looking at what was really going on underneath, having that curiosity to explore. You know, if we really want to have a chance at at navigating conflict well, we need to be able to look below the surface and not settle for what's at the superficial level. Last point. Dialogue isn't always beneficial for everyone. You know, one of the realities is that for some of us, it would actually be really unwise and unsafe for us to pursue dialogue or to take action in response to a particular situation. And yes, we're watching Jesus take an action-oriented response, but we need to recognize this might not be something that we can do right now. And so there needs to be wisdom in when and how we choose to pursue dialogue and action-oriented approaches to addressing conflict. And what this might mean is that for some of us, we need to recognize that, 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 that the dialogues that we feel safe and inspired and moved to engage in might actually be for the benefit of those who can't. This is what we see Jesus doing. Jesus is working for those who don't have the position or the ability to speak up for themselves. And that might be our role in navigating conflict is that we can say things that other people can't. We can speak up for other people who don't have the power, don't have the resources, don't have the capacity to be able to speak up for themselves. Now, as I wrap up this morning, I want to again say... There are no easy answers in how we go about uh, addressing conflict and working for peace. There is no easy, simple, here's the magic bullet, here's the formula to make things right quickly. Rather, what we're talking about is that we're talking about a way of life that as we follow Jesus and we allow him to shape us and we allow him to lead us, that we are transformed into people who can engage conflict differently and in better, healthier ways than maybe we could on our own. I think Psalm 85 uh, says something rather wonderful about this pairing of different things that can come to life in us. In Psalm 85 it says that when God is present that love and faithfulness meet together. That righteousness and peace they kiss. There's this merging of things that happen as we follow Jesus that can be present in us as we navigate the hard things, the hard conversations, the hard circumstances. And as we give ourselves to God, as we say, God, can you help me? Will you lead me? Will you, will you give me the strength to have this conversation? Will you give me the peace to, to know the questions to ask? Will you give me the courage to act or maybe the courage to reserve judgment and step back from this situation? Something really beautiful can emerge. And so we need God's help to help, to help make that happen in us. And so as we prepare to close this morning, we're asking God to be a part of us and a part of our lives to shape us so that we can, be, you know, we can engage conflict, big stuff and easy stuff, in, rather, in some rather life-giving ways. Please join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for, for who you are. Lord, for your presence here with us. That, Lord, we are grateful for how you have met us here, wherever we're coming from this week, that, Lord, you are with us. Lord, this morning, I want to acknowledge that some of us have had amazing weeks. Lord, we have had some really good things happen to us, and so our posture here this morning is to say thank you. Thank you for the opportunities. Thank you for the people that we got to be with. Thank you for helping us learn and grow this week. Lord, thank you. Others of us here, God, are are here in mourning. Mourning the loss of somebody. Mourning the loss of a relationship. Lord, anticipating change that we aren't looking forward to. And so, God, we look to you this morning and we likewise say, God, we need you. Would you come speak to us this, this morning as you already have and give us the strength and the wisdom, the discernment that we need. God, as we go into our week, we will no doubt have opportunities to engage with others that maybe we don't see eye to eye with. Lord, would you help us to navigate these conversations and these circumstances in ways that honor you, that reflect your peacemaking love? Lord, Jesus, help us to discern when we need to act and when we need to step back. Help us to know the right questions to ask. help us to have the right spirit within us. Lord Jesus, would you create in us peacemakers? Would you make us to be your peacemakers in our families, in our neighborhoods, in the places where we work and go to school? Lord, let peace begin with us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.